Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Jen. This is the Mindfulness Movement and Exercise podcast. And today we are going to discuss some of the common themes, or actually I should specify this a little more clearly. One of the more common themes that shows up in the mind-body movement modalities or the modern mind-body movement modalities. To quickly recap, last time we took a dive into modern mind-body movement modalities and kind of how we got here, which is sort of the theme. That's why we're looking at the history of exercise, the history of mindfulness, the history of the mind-body exercise techniques. How did we get to this place that we're at right now where the idea of exercise and separate from the idea of movement and some modalities are supposed to be healing while others are not. And, and this idea that we can't or that moving without instruction is could be injurious or problematic and that there's a right way to move and a wrong way to move. All of these ideas that permeate the current mentality and some of the current thoughts around mindfulness movement and exercise. So back in the 1800s, if you remember, there were two individuals, one in Sweden, one in Germany, who started to talk about this mind-body connection during exercise. And they were doing it specifically from this, I, this place of gymnastics. So we had... Ling in Sweden and Friedrich Ludwig Jan in Germany. In the 1900s, there was this split. So physical culture, which is what came of that gymnastics movement, had an influence over a lot of the different exercise ideas that were coming around during that time. If you remember way back to the first episode, I talked about how exercise had three main themes around it. You exercised for physical wellness. You exercised to become a good soldier. And you exercised for an aesthetic reason. These were the three main reasons people were exercising. And people were using a lot of different modalities to exercise at that point in time. A lot of body weight stuff. There was the first dumbbell started to made an appearance in the Spartan area. I recently learned that the term deadlift, which literally means to lift dead weight off the ground. The first kind of reference to strength of that manner was Way back in ancient Greece, there's a stone that has something carved on it that says this particular Grecian lift this heavy, heavy stone. And this was way back in like 400 BCE, I believe. I could be mistaken about that date, but I believe it was 400 BCE. So anyway, fitness, though it had specific exercise, though it had a specific reason behind it, was using a lot of different ways to get there. But then in the 1900s, we had some different ideas show up. It was the popularization of bodybuilding. So people specifically using external weights to look a certain way or to achieve a certain thing. There was a big emphasis on training 
for the military training to become a better soldier in the 19, in the early 1900s in the West. At the same time, there were these pioneers, these mo modern mind-body movement pioneers that came out and said, no, we should not be using any external weight at all. We should move it, be moving in a really effortless manner. And we should really try to control the body with the mind, which is what mind-body meant at the time. There were some other terms that started to show up in these modern mind-body movement disciplines that, again, have permeated, that have kind of stayed, and every once in a while they make this appearance and become popular today. Things like animal-style movement and functional movement, natural movement. It was also the first mention these early 1900s mind-body pioneers, it was the first time using movement as a way to heal was mentioned. And again, I am, I've not covered some of the big names with that, some of the modalities that were, that heavily influenced that way of thinking. And those would be things like yoga, things like Tai Chi, things like Feldenkrais, some of these are named after people. Some of these are not. Some of these are modalities. I'm going to do separate episodes on those. Before we get into the one of the underlying themes that allows this idea of effortless movement, go ahead and come into a comfortable seated position. And if you're not driving, you can close your eyes. If you are driving, do not close your eyes. Just listen. I want you to observe your thoughts. It's almost like you're sitting in a movie theater and on the screen in front of you is each thought that you have floating by. Don't try to change your thoughts. Just watch them. As you watch them, notice the space between each thought. It may be short, barely noticeable. Or there may be a discernible pause. Then go ahead and relax. So what type of exercise is that? What type of mindfulness technique is that? It's an open monitoring technique. Open monitoring, again, if you remember way back to episode two, I talked about this. Open monitoring activates the salient network of the brain, which is simply a various parts of the brain that work together that allow you to observe. Why is this beneficial? It creates space to allow you to observe what's happening. It cultivates curiosity. 
and it reduce, reduces noise from other places. We've talked a lot about noise. One of the main benefits of the idea of mindfulness is the reduction of noise, which is unwanted distraction. Your thoughts can be noise, or they can be a way to facilitate kind of finding some of this space, depending on how you're interacting with your thoughts. When you're fully in your thoughts, remember that's a different network of the brain. That's your default mode network. This is the autobiographical stories that we tell ourselves. These are the, play, it's the place where ideas come from and creativity comes from. Sometimes those thoughts can be really powerful and sometimes they can detract. But you have a choice in terms of how you interact with your thoughts. And that's one of the things that type of exercise does for you is it gives you the ability to step back and observe and then choose what you do next. All right, so now that we've gotten through that, one of the main components of most mind-body exercise systems is tapping into the felt sense of movement. What in the world does that mean? This is based on two underlying principles. I'm gonna talk about proprioception first. Proprioception comes from the Latin word proprius, which means to own, and the word reception. So it's literally this reception of self, own sense of self is another way to think of your proprioception. Proprioception was a term that was first coined in 1906 by a neurophysiologist from England named Sir Charles Sherrington. And it's unconscious. You have proprioception just like you have thoughts, just like you have breath, whether you're focusing on it or not. So, if we take that definition and we kind of build upon it a little bit more, proprioception is your unconscious awareness of where your body is in space. Neurophysiologists took all of these ideas, started looking at cells. There's a lot of sensory cells that are located within your body, within your joints, that are constantly giving feedback to your brain and telling your brain, this is where you are. If you wanna reach for that glass of water, here's the speed at which you can do it, and here is the way in which you can do it. And here's the thing, you have all kinds of options. So it's not like you just have one speed with which you can reach for the water or one way in which you can reach for the water. You have lots of choices. Your brain chooses the one that is most efficient at that time based on all of this feedback that it's getting in the body 
And these cells are really responsive to pressure. So these cells are picking up on what's happening based on pressure input. The other thing that influences the choice of how you do a specific task is the other input that you are receiving. Input regarding the room that you're in, input regarding the light that's coming in, your visual system, input from your ears, input from your nose, all of these senses provide information to your brain that allow your brain to determine how a task is being done. Okay, so proprioception. <clears throat> this is an underlying principle in a lot of these modern mind-body movement modalities. They take it to a very conscious place. So rather than just looking at this from this unconscious awareness, a lot of the mind-body movement modalities look at it from the place of body awareness. And body awareness is a little bit different. So yes, body awareness can absolutely influence your proprioception. But body awareness is a very conscious thing. And again, this is considered a key element for therapeutic mind-body approaches such as yoga, Alexander Technique, Feldenkrais, Tai Chi, and something called body awareness therapy. It's believed to lead to greater unity between the body and the self, which is embodiment. The goal behind these approaches that are looking to cultivate this body awareness are to cultivate non-judgmental mindfulness. There's that word again, which is awareness of the current experience, what's happening right now, with an orientation of curiosity, experiential openness, and acceptance. There is attentional focus on awareness of internal body sensations for a lot of these techniques. This is where things get a little bit sticky. So if you're looking at this attentional focus to your bodily sensations and you're focusing on them, for some people, this might work out great. This might be another way to focus on creating space. It might give people that option, that opportunity. But for others they're already receiving so much information internally that it feels like noise. And when you ask them to focus on that noise, that noise just gets louder and this becomes problematic. This is why specific breathing exercises don't work for everybody. It's the reason you can't always take someone who has a lot of anxiety and ask them to lie on their back and begin focusing on the way their back is pressing on the floor. Because if maybe they are, like I said, they have anxiety and maybe they have a little twinge in their low back, maybe that twinge starts to get louder and louder as they're focusing on 
the way their back is pressing into the floor. So, like I said, this idea can work really, really well for some, but maybe not as well for others. And that's totally okay. Conversely, if you've got someone with a whole bunch of energy and you ask them to slow everything down, this may or may not work. Sometimes to get to the place where you can slow everything down, you have to use some of the energy. So let's look at some ideas or some examples of others who may be able to cultivate this, this general concept, right? Which is non-judgmental mindfulness, which is essentially like that exercise that we did in the very beginning, just open monitoring, just awareness. The dancer. As the dancer dances, they can place their focus wherever they'd like, and they can simply observe the rhythm of the music and allow their body to interact with the music in whatever way feels intuitive. They can observe what comes up. They can observe what patterns they, they prefer, what patterns they don't. But arguably, this is another way to achieve essentially the same thing. The person hiking, the person that is hiking up a large hill on a single track, on a train filled with rocks. Their attention is going to be focused on the visual. It's going to be focused on the rocks. It's going to be focused on navigating up the train without tripping. But the task may not be complex enough that it takes all of their attention. So some of their attention can go elsewhere and some of their attention can go to this observation of the scenery, the observation of their breath, the observation of how they're moving up the hill. The aerial artist. So if someone is up in the air performing a silks routine and they know the routine so well that again, it requires their attention, but it doesn't take every last ounce of them to focus on it. They can observe how they are reaching their arm, how they bring their leg legs into a straddle, how they flip forward. They can let the observation of the experience create curiosity. What happens if I try this with a little more fullness or what happens if I make the movement a little bit shorter? The parkour athlete, as they move through the obstacle, their attention is very focused. They can't think much about how they're going to do things. They're just going to respond to them. But 
if they're in the moment enough, they will be able to just drop into this place where they can observe the sound of their feet as they hit the ground. They can observe the sense of their arms as they pull themselves up the wall. They can observe the sense of their feet as they catwalk across the pole. And I purposely put those in order. I, uh, well, not really. I mean, it, it could kind of be argued that dancing could be either a high arousal activity or a low arousal activity. Hiking, depending on the type of terrain, how dangerous it feels, that too can be a high arousal versus a low arousal activity. There's always a little bit of arousal involved with aerial and with parkour. Just the nature of the fact that you know, you're off the ground or you're navigating over obstacles. <laughs> but arousal, if you remember, I've mentioned this quite a few times, is something that we can use to our advantage once we understand it. Optimizing arousal can allow us to optimize our relationship to an activity. If I take this in the context for, context, for instance, of the dancer, if the dancer is learning a new move, arousal is going to be a little higher. And if they're losing, learning a new move that they're not successful at, that's a little outside their comfort zone, their arousal is going to be even higher. If the new move has an element of danger to it or feels impossible, their arousal is going to be so high that their chances of success are very low because the anxiety or the, the stress related to the activity is going to be really high. This is the same with the hiker. If you're hiking with, if you've ever hiked with someone and you take them up a trail that you think is going to be great because it's one of your favorite trails, but the person is not an experienced hiker and you start partway up and there's some scrambly stuff going on and the pitch is really steep you'll hear the person start to breathe heavily and you will hear the little bit of panic in the person's voice as they say, this isn't a good choice for me. I need to go back. I need to stop. Arousal was too high for them to successfully complete the task. Another way to think of this is the stress is too high in order for successful, successful completion. It's the same with aerial or parkour. If you attempt a movement in the aerial world that is outside of your comfort zone, your arousal is going to be so high, you're not going to be able to focus on anything other than I'm not, I don't want to die. <laughs> I speak from experience with this. I have to sometimes ask my teachers, are you sure I'm not going to die? And they say, yes, I'm sure you're not going to die. And I'm still here. So apparently they've been right. And it's the same with parkour. I've done a little bit of parkour. I don't practice it anymore. But when you start to learn some of that stuff, and I'm one that will immediately put on the brakes and say, no, I don't want to go there. Some people will push through for better or for worse. Even though their anxiety is high, they will still try and attempt the task. So again, there's this optimal arousal level that has to happen. And why do I keep talking about arousal? And what does this have to do with this idea of mindfulness and mind-body connection and movement. Well, I'm going to argue that if you understand where your arousal is, 
and you know whether or not you're in a place where you can successfully attempt something, then you're coming at it from a place that is mindfully based. And that's a learned thing. And sometimes when you take some of these other modalities or these other forms of movement and exercise and you start to implement them into your regular life, you can find the same benefits as you can with some of the more traditional mind-body modalities. Just something to think about. So doing what I just talked about, this idea of finding the right arousal and then attempting the task, this is very different than placing awareness on internal body sensations. The placing of your awareness on your internal body sensation is your interoceptive awareness. Now, arguably, if you feel your heart rate elevating and your breathing elevating right before you go to attempt something and you know, just you, you intuitively know that this is not a good choice for you, arguably that is some interoceptive awareness. Interoception also came from the same neurophysiologist in 1906, he was a very busy man, Sir Charles Sherrington. And he coined it to mean anything visceral. Like when you have kind of a that drop in the pit of your stomach, or your stomach's a little queasy, those would be interoceptive senses. Now, the trouble with the term interoception is as the decades have gone by, lots of researchers have tried to shift it and change the meaning, and there's still no uniform meaning. But to keep things easy, when people refer of this interoceptive awareness in today's world, it just usually means the internal sense of self. And this can be all kinds of stuff. It can be, am I tired? Am I hungry? Do I have any sort of weird aches and pains? All of those are your internal sense of self. And again, when you're attending to those, when you're paying attention to those, which is good, we need to know when we're hungry, we need to know when we're tired. But if you're in a modality where you're constantly referencing back to that, and you're not a person for whom that that is a good choice, that can be, again, be a little bit problematic. So something to consider as you listen to me talk about this, and hopefully as you think about some of these concepts, is different people need different things. What some people find elevates their arousal, others find decreases arousal and vice versa. And you probably all know these people, the people that can have a cup of coffee and go to sleep. Or the people that have a glass of wine and they're suddenly way butt, or uh, like their energy level goes way up. Because we all have these different makeups, blanket ideas regarding a lot of, you know, regarding some of just these these concepts of exercise, mindfulness, and movement 
It's not a one size fit all thing. It's all thing. And I don't think that it's necessary for people who are really high energy to put themselves into modalities that are that where movement is very slow if it doesn't resonate with them. I think they can get the same benefits exploring movement in another way. And that's not to say that those modalities are bad. They're not. They've helped a lot of people and they will continue to help a lot of people. It's just if you're someone who has tried one of these modalities and it didn't quite fit thick, but you know you need an element of mindfulness in your life, maybe look at it from an alternate perspective. Just about anything can be done in a mindful way, even lifting weights. If you're inspiring curiosity, if we go back to that original definition where we're trying to cultivate curiosity, how can you be curious about how you're doing things? There are so many ways. We have so many choices. Final note on this is I want you to just take this with a grain of salt, but one aspect of learning and flow, which I will also do an episode on later, is optimizing arousal. Do you have the right arousal level for the task? Both learning and flow are byproducts of developing the ability to tap into different brain networks. A common theme we will see going forward is the benefit of improving sense of the physical self. Because there are so many benefits to improving your body awareness, if we're going to go with that term. And the influences it can have on your ability to know where you are in space and your ability to feel confident and how that manifests into different aspects of emotional regulation and your ability to feel autonomous and all of these things. This can be done so many different ways. Once you understand these underlying concepts that a lot of these modalities utilized, you can take them and you can apply them anywhere. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop them in the comment section or just reach out. All right. Thank you, everyone.